You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Barry Blumberg, Chief Content Officer of Mammoth Media. Barry, welcome to the show. Hey, James. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, excited to do this. I want to kind of go back in time and start things off by talking about how you got your start in the media business. It's a long time ago, but I started in on the marketing side. I started working in an ad agency in New York doing consumer promotion for, you know, big brand companies. I worked at an agency, part of uh, WPP. It was called uh, Morton Goldberg and Associates. It was my first job, my first real job. And uh, we did consumer promotion, which, you know, basically meant putting special offers to go with brands in freestanding inserts, which were pieces of paper that went inside something called a newspaper and was distributed to 50 million people. It was the most inefficient but largest way to reach lots of people back when I started. Sure. So you cut your teeth in the ad space, and yeah. then what followed after that? A friend of mine had, uh, had grown up with a guy that bought Harvey Comics from the family that had started it. And I tried to bring him on as a client of our company. And he became a client for about six months. And after about six months, he said, I really would like you to come and be our head of marketing. Would you consider moving back to Los Angeles to do that? So I came back to become the VP of marketing at Harvey Comics. And that eventually led to taking over the the publishing business, the merchandising business, and uh, the animation side of the business. Wow. So you're originally from LA and gone out to New York to work in advertising and then get this opportunity to move back. How did you feel about kind of that homecoming? Um, I I love living in New York. I I thought it was really great. Um, But the opportunity was, you know, too exciting to pass up. I was young. Jeff Montgomery, who had bought the company from the family, was very young, and uh, you know he had a lot of big plans. He said he was going to make a Casper movie with Steven Spielberg, and that we would do a Richie Rich movie with Joel Silver, and he was going to sell a piece of the company to uh, MCA Universal, and that we were going to go public. And so that all sounded like fantastic to me, and. Uh, we did all those things in, uh, in four short years. Well, that's incredible. Wow. So what an education for you. This is kind of your second job right out of school. Yeah. Right. Running marketing for this uh, rapidly growing comic brand, huh? Yeah. It was uh, fast-paced and, you know, you, you find yourself in a room with Steven Spielberg or, or Joel Silver or Macaulay Culkin at the time, who was a big, uh, big movie star. Of course. And making cartoons to, you know, to go on television with... Casper the Friendly Ghost and Baby Huey and uh, Little Dot was uh, was very exciting. So that was your entree into the media business, right? Film, TV. What sparked your imagination or caught your interest about that world? So, you know, I like telling stories. I like working with, uh, with talented people. I like the possibilities. I, you know, not ever by choice, but found myself engaging with young audiences. So, you know, at 
the ad agency. I worked with brands like Wonder Bread and Colgate Toothpaste and KB Toy Stores and sort of found myself doing doing stuff for younger audiences. And then, you know, Harvey was obviously young. And uh, when it was time to leave Harvey, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or what I was qualified to do. But I felt like the things I really liked about the job that I had before was not the you know merchandising and licensing side of the business or the corporate side of the business being in a small co- public company. What I really liked was making stuff. And so I set out to find a job that, that would allow me to continue to, to do that. And where did you land after that? After um, having- I, I took an entitled, uh, a big step back. I went to the Walt Disney Company to be their head of development for television animation. And that was just, um, you know, something that I felt I had to do, um, even though I'd been the executive vice president of Harvey Comics, you know, which, which sounds like a big thing or sounded like a big thing at the time. Getting into the Walt Disney Company and being able to work with some of the characters and, and the, you know, history that that they had, as, as well as to have the opportunity to, you know, push that division forward was, was something that I couldn't pass up. And, you know, a year into the job, we bought ABC and, uh, you know, we were tasked with turning their Saturday morning programming slate around. And so we had five hours to fill and, uh, you know, we didn't have to go out and sell to other companies. We now had this great opportunity to fill this program. Sure. Well, for someone who, whether by interest or just uh, nature of, of the past experience, wanted to work in children's entertainment, uh, you, were, you found yourself at the pinnacle of that, right, at that time, huh? Yeah, for sure. It was a really exciting time. We were the number four network uh, in the landscape of, you know, uh, CBS, uh, Fox, and the Kids WB. And uh, we didn't have any, you know, real restrictions about what it was that we could do. And so, you know, we really endeavored to find the best and most talented people working in the industry at the time and to try to figure out you know what the appropriate mix of the Disney brand with Disney classic characters and new characters and, and new storytelling and then how do you put it all together into something that, that was an exciting destination a place for kids to go on a Saturday morning and you know that's how we ultimately wound up with Disney's one Saturday morning, which was a two-hour block of programming that was live action. It was the first show ever to do live action and virtual sets. And then we had three half hours of cartoons that ran off of the half hour inside of that. Those were Recess, Pepper Ann, and I think Doug, or 101 Dalmatians, or um, something else that, that went in there. But, but that was great because we worked with Paul Germain and Joanne Sullivan-Hare, who'd just come off of Rugrats, Peter Hastings, who, who had been on Animaniacs, and Pinky and the Brain, um, who's now running Captain Underpants, and we, we worked with Sue Rose and Anatra Khan, who created Fresh Off the Boat, and uh, Scott Gimple was a writer on Pepper Ann, who's running The Walking Dead today. So, you know, it was a great opportunity to work with some very established people, but also give some young writers their first opportunities to write programming. And, uh, you know, a lot of those people went on to do great things, including um, two guys we hired right out of college, um, Miller and Lord, who they had 
done a comic in the Dartmouth School newspaper, which somehow Michael Eisner had come into possession of. I think his son went to Dartmouth, and he said, maybe these guys um, can do something. And so I met with them and, and uh, said, why don't you guys move out to Los Angeles and we'll pay you $500 a week to have your first job in the entertainment industry. And of course, we, we know they've gone on to, to good things as well. That's right. Wow, incredible. So you spent 12 years at the Mouse House, right? Eventually becoming president of TV Animation. I did. So how was that experience? It was a fantastic experience. You know, it, it is, um, in a way, it's the best place in the world to work because when somebody asks you, you know, what do you do? You say, I work for Disney, and you don't need to explain anything more than that. You know, at Harvey, you kind of needed to tell people, oh, where's Casper and Richie Rich? Or, in the ad business, you needed to say, why are you stuff for Colgate or, or um, you know, Nintendo? But at Disney, you don't need to tell anybody anything. Like, you make cartoons for the Walt Disney Company? I, I know what that is. So it was really great. It was really great people. You know, they have the ability to, to attract the most talented people on the creative side as well as, you know, really smart, seasoned executives that I had the opportunity to learn from. And, you know, that's from... Uh, Michael Eisner to Bob Iger to Jerry Laybourne was there when I was there to Dean Valentine who was my immediate boss to Dick Cook and Joe Roth and really really smart people who there was a lot to learn from. Yeah incredible but at some point it's around 2006 and you notice that children's entertainment is changing right what caught your attention or what what kind of caused you to look beyond what was happening in the TV landscape? I don't know that I noticed that it was changing. I, I was, um, you know, comfortably um, ensconced in the, you know, halo of the Walt Disney Company. And so you're not really paying that much attention to what goes on on the outside. I, I know what was going on for us on the inside is that, you know, when you become successful at something, it becomes more institutional and institutionalized. and you take fewer risks and you become more formulaic about what it is that you want to do. And so where you were taking a lot of chances before, you know, you, you start to dictate a lot of things to yourself about, oh, we need to, you know, hit these beats. And some great things came out of that, like Kim Possible or, you know, in the preschool space doing Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Those were really great experiences, and, and you know, we, we made the pilot for Phineas and Ferb, which was, you know, in, in many ways reactionary to, to sort of storyboard-driven shows that Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network were so good at. So, you know, there, there were some big successes out of that, but it was less free. You know, more people were paying attention to what it was that we were doing, and uh, it, it just got to the place where I, I, I felt like, I had done everything that, that I could do there. And so I left in January of 2006 and uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um, this new thing called YouTube had been out there for about two months. And, uh, and I think it launched in November of 2005 or something like that. And so I was playing around with it. And uh, I saw this video of these two guys lip syncing the lyrics to the Pokemon theme song. and. Uh, it was terrible, but a million people had watched it. And uh, there was just something really charismatic about, about these two guys. The fact that all these people had watched it and the name Smosh was, was a great um, sounding name. And so, you know, I, I thought maybe there's something to this. Like maybe there's something there to, to be done. And I really, you know, like, like most of the people in the space at the time had no idea what I was doing, but I reached out to 
Anthony Padilla and Ian Hecox up in Sacramento, who were 18 at the time. And, uh, and How did you get in touch with them? I am fairly certain I sent them a message on their YouTube channel. And uh, we set up a phone call and we got on the phone. And after some confusion, because um, they looked me up and they thought I wanted them to do voices for cartoons, because I said I'm looking for unique voices, and, and they saw that literally. Um, <laughs> we met and... Uh, you know, I said, if we if we become partners and we do this right, I think we could really build a, a big comedy brand for young people, and you'll never have to get regular jobs. And so they, they liked to 18 year olds like that. Dream. <laughs> like that was a really exciting proposition for them. And so we started out with nothing, and, uh, you know, we tried to make videos on a, on a regular basis. You know, I brought a lot of... Uh, traditional media learning to, to that business and said, you know, we have to respect our audience, we have to make regularly scheduled programs, we should really try to write scripts and tell stories, we should try to get better at what we do every time we go out and, and we make a video. And, uh, you know, they were so much more capable than, than I expected and so much sharper and so you know, additive, not just on the, the creative side, but, you know, also on the business side, because they'd grown up in a world where, you know, they had lived in this space, and, you know, I was just coming into it. So it was really great. And, uh, you know, for probably six months, we, we just sort of bumped along and made our content for YouTube. And, uh, and it was just the three of you. It was just the three point, of huh? us, and we made Did they move down to L.A.? No, no. Oh. That was one of the things I told them never to do. Hmm. Don't move here. So stay in Sacramento. Yeah. yeah. As long as they were in Sacramento, they were the two guys in Sacramento. But if they moved to L.A., mm. they were one of a hundred YouTubers. Sure. Or, you know, today, one of a million YouTubers who moved to Los Angeles and want to make a living. So mm. they stayed in Sacramento as long as was humanly possible for, the, for them to stay there. And look, it, it was much cheaper to do things in Sacramento. It was cheaper for them to live. It was cheaper for us to hire production people. It was much more lenient about where you could shoot and what kind of permits you you got and, and everything else. So it was, a, it was a great place for us to be doing our physical production. But six, six months in, maybe a year in, we, we get a call from George Strompolis, who runs full screen now. He was at YouTube at the time. And, uh, and he said, we want to make you a part of our YouTube partner program, and, and we're going to pay you um, $9,000 a month to, to do that. We're going to guarantee you $9,000 a month against your ad revenue. How were they so monetizing was, previously? Well, we were not really monetizing. I mean, we were getting small checks from Google AdSense. We had Google AdSense running on our website. We had Smosh.com. We had Blip. Um, we had a blip player on the website, and so we would do our bonus video every week on the website, and, and back in the day when you could actually drive traffic from YouTube to your website, um, you know, we were able to generate millions of views on the website, which, you know, monetized at a much higher CPM than uh, and YouTube did at the time, and so, uh, you know, we were able to make a little bit of a living. Nobody was getting rich. I wasn't paying myself anything at the time. and. Um, you know, they were you know, subsisting on whatever, whatever we were making. You mentioned you love the Smosh name. Where does it come from? You know, Anthony and Ian can tell you the story better than I can, but I think that it, it came from a conversation where they were talking about a mosh pit, and one of their friends mistakenly called it a Smosh pit. And so um, Anthony liked it so much that he built this website that was 
originally built as a place where his friends could go and have chat, go into chat rooms together. And that's, um, you know, the forum section on the Smosh website for a very long time was the most trafficked area on the site in the beginning. So just to recap, I guess what I'm having maybe a bit of trouble understanding is how you went from being the president of TV animation at Disney, right, the, this, the biggest media company around, to saying, I need a new challenge, I want to learn something new, I've done what I can do here at Disney, and in just a matter of months, discovering this what would become a huge phenomenon, right? Helping to build this incredible yeah, so brand. I for thank you, but I for sure never said that, right? <laughs> you know, I often joke that Smosh is the one thing during that period of time that never went away. So I was doing a bunch of stuff, you know, trying to produce projects, you know, working on other things, doing work with other people, but Smosh was always there. And like, it just sort of in, in the beginning, like kept having this sort of slow growth and, you know, you hit a million subscribers on YouTube and then you hit two million and you're the most subscribed channel on the platform and you're the most viewed video of the day and the week and you have the most viewed video of all time. It, you know, it sort of starts to snowball and move towards becoming something and, and then getting, you know, $9,000 a month from YouTube, which was a lot of money to those guys at the time. You know, it really served to fund our production and, you know, at that point, we, you know, through UTA, got introduced to the guys at DECA, Michael Wayne, who I know has been on your program, and, and uh, they made a small investment in Smosh and, and provided us with some back-end services by finance and legal and, you know, took over the product and tech responsibilities on, on the website. And so, you know, that was a good transitional experience for us of like, okay, I can work at this full time and so we had an office to go to and and uh you know i think the best thing that ever came out of that uh relationship was that we decided to you know do what was very popular during the time which was build you know a blog world on the website so we started publishing articles and stories and picture galleries and you know now we were this company that you know, had two YouTube channels, both of which, you know, were fairly substantial in, in YouTube terms. We had a website that was generating revenue. We had an editor that was creating content for that website, and it sort of felt like a real business. Wow. So DECA gave you some of the infrastructure and help you further professionalize and take Smosh into the next levels of business. Yeah. But, it's, but at some point, as Michael kind of explained on the podcast, and now it's great to hear your side of the story, DECA rebrands... Our side of the story will be consistent. <laughs> which is good. You know, that the DECA rebrands as Ken, decides to focus on women's lifestyle content, and now there's a better opportunity for Smosh to find a home with Alloy Digital. Yeah, you know, I, I think that Alloy Digital was was a great opportunity, really understood what it was that, that we wanted to do and was really willing to, you know, uh, resource this business to grow to the next level. And so Michael and Decca slash Ken were, were going off in another direction and Alloy had been the premier you know, young people's website business with sites like teen.com and girl.com, you know, Alloy Entertainment had created Vampire Diaries and Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars and ran all the digital properties for, for, for those programs before, before their sale to, to Warner Brothers. 
it, it was you know the right place to be at the right time, and so we, we got you know a, a tremendous opportunity to go there, and I think that we all got to pay ourselves a little bit of money to um, you know to not just exist, but um, to actually be you know, feel like there was a decent value proposition between the work we were doing and what we were able to take out of. So you join Alloy as well as uh, an EVP. We all joined Alloy. Yeah. I joined Alloy as uh, head of content, mm -hmm. and so you know I think I was EVP of content for Alloy or whatever it was. And, and uh, you know Anthony and Ian eventually contemplated a move down to Los Angeles. Anthony came down first. Ian came down a year or so later, um, which made things difficult. I was going to say, wow, how do you produce content when they're in yeah, different places? Yeah, it was um, it, it was challenging. But um, you know we were really able to grow the website business at, at, at that time, and really able to you know uh, rev up some of the other businesses that, that we had. We also got funded for Shut Up Cartoons, which had been in process as we were having conversations with Alloy, and so we launched an animation channel. We very soon after that launched Smosh Games, and so we had Smosh Games, Shut Up Cartoons, Smosh Second Channel, Smosh Main Channel, the website, and. You know, it was it felt like a much realer business. And eventually, Alloy Digital merges with Break.com, and they form Defy Media. Yes. Right? And so, what was the mandate for Defy? What was going to be different about this new entity bringing these two businesses together? You know, I think that we we likened ourselves to you know at the time this this was a good analogy, but you know we likened ourselves to a digital equivalent of Viacom. So, a company that had a lot of brands that served a lot of different audiences. We had. Uh, we had acquired Clever, we had acquired uh, Escapist, we ran Girl.com, we ran Team.com, we ran Smosh, and then when we merged with Break, we had Break.com, we had Screen Junkies, we had AWME, and so, you know, we had a lot of brands that serviced young men, young women, you know, slightly older girls, slightly older women, and so, this, you know, this entire spectrum from sort of 12 to 34 years old, we had a brand that, that was going to hit you whether you were male or female. As the chief content officer by that point, you know, my mandate was to try to help all these brands grow. Um, I had a particular affinity for, for Smosh, and so, you know, one of the things that we really wanted to try to do at Smosh was take some of the pressure off Anthony and Ian. Um, they weren't 18 anymore, they were 26, and... They were. Um, they needed to be surrounded with with younger people. We'd always, you know, since Time Magazine called them the Saturday Night Live of the Internet back in 2007. You know, we really felt like let's make good on that and and hire a cast that can build it out. We'd already done it with Smosh Games. That was a little less precious to us because it was a gaming channel and it wasn't really what they did. Yeah, it's not the Clever, core identity. Clever had a games channel that had three guys on it that we really liked, and so we rebranded that channel, and sort of Anthony and Ian in spirit took it over, and the Smosh brand of humor infused the, the gaming space. But adding a new cast to, to the Smosh main channel was, was a um, big leap for us. And so... How did it go? What did, how did audience react? Well, I mean, you know, I think that the first one that we added was Mari. Um, Mari had been, you know, appearing in some videos for us, and we actually created a show called Smosh Pit Weekly, which was the name of the blog on the website. And the entire, you know, thesis behind that show was drive people to the website. And people hated her in the beginning, but eventually 
they came to love her. And so a couple of years later, when we brought in Courtney and Shane and Noah and Keith and Olivia, they were all similarly poorly received initially. But, you know, I'll bet if you talk to kids today, you know, there are probably, there's probably a whole half generation of kids who don't know Smosh without those people. And if you say, who's your favorite? They may say, my favorite is Keith, or I, you know, I love Olivia, like those are my favorite Smosh characters. And they don't know a Smosh that, that is any different. You were at Defy quite a long time, right? And eventually left end of last year to yes. join Mammoth Media. Yes. So what are you focused on today? You know, today I think the most exciting things are happening in the, in the mobile space, which is what Mammoth does. And so, you know, when Benoit Vauter, who's the CEO of the company, and Mike Jones talked to me about what Mammoth was trying to do, this prospect of creating a network of apps that program content to audiences in this you know, on mobile platforms was super exciting to me because that's where audiences are. You know, I, I have a 14 year old son and he does not watch programming on his computer really, unless he's playing a game, he watches it on his phone. And so, you know, they had three apps that were in the marketplace. Um, you know, one was Wishbone, which was the, the most mature of the apps that we have. It's a, it's a voting app for, um, you know, largely trafficked by younger women. But it's really elegant in its simplicity, and you know they, they do a billion votes a quarter on the platform, so they're generating a ton of impressions with their audience, and it's incredibly addictive. And then they launched Yarn, which you know to me felt like what early YouTube felt like. It's you know storytelling via text messages was the initial conceit of it, but you know now it's sort of evolving into storytelling on mobile with a focus on text, but with video and audio and images. And so you know, there, there is no limit other than economic to, to what it is that we can do there. And you know, it's a subscription platform and subscription is, is super hard in the video space, but in the mobile space where you're not really getting compared to what are the other offerings that are out there, this is something that's unique and different. And I don't, as a consumer, want to miss an episode of Modern Dating or you know, um, Mystery Dog or Bruises, you subscribe to the, to the platform. And the company is incredibly, incredibly good at identifying these audiences, bringing them in and getting them to download the app and then you know, working to convert them into paying subscribers. So, you know, those were the two that were kind of up and running. And then, you know, the third thing that we're doing right now is, is we're in the process of um, producing a live game similar to HQ called Arena. And it, it, Arena has a unique twist and that, you know, HQ you watch and they give away a bunch of money. On Arena, you watch and play and you can win money, but you can also be a subscriber on the Arena platform and get, if you were a VIP, additional lives and lifelines to enhance your ability to play the game. And, and so, you know, we're, we're really in, in the world with that, but it's really in the beta stage and, and what we're moving towards in that is how do you create a richer economy in a, in a game like that where you don't have to be a paying player to earn those things. And so, you know, the more you play, the more questions you answer correctly, the more consecutive games you play, 
the more currency you can earn, and that enhances your ability to um, play the game and ultimately win money. It's fascinating how much these new technology, but also the cultural implications of this technology is changing the way that we create and consume content. Yeah. Right? And the storytelling elements that are, are fundamentally different. There's so many unique opportunities. We're not confined to the 30s and the 60s of traditional media. We can tell stories you know, in, in smaller segments or broken up in nonlinear fashion as a result of mobile technology. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you go back to 1997 and, and uh, launching Disney one Saturday morning and we said, let's do a two hour programming block and let's not launch on the half hour and let's have segments that are a minute long and three minutes long and, and then there's an 11 minute cartoon and then there's a two minute, you know, wrap around that, that happens there. So. You know, we were really trying to think outside of the box at that time because, you know, nobody measures their life in 22 or 44 minutes. Those are artificial constructs around how many ad units you can insert in, in 30 or 60 minutes per broadcast standards and practices. So that was always artificial and any opportunity that, you know, I've had over my experience to, to break with that, to give audiences, you know, what it is that they want. Um, when they want it and, you know, to, to tell it in an appropriate length based on the content, not based on the construct, was, you know, always something that, that I've tried to do. A smosh video could have been four minutes long, it could have been 11 minutes long, and, you know, today everybody is trying to, you know, predict what the YouTube algorithm will favor, but, you know, in the early days, I didn't, we didn't know what a YouTube algorithm was, so we just... Oh, it's a four-minute story. It's a six-minute story. So it seems like early in your career, you worked in these traditional businesses, right? Advertising agency, big film and TV. But there's this, this kind of through line throughout your career of you being very entrepreneurial, right? Wanting to do creative projects, wanting to be at early-stage businesses and help shape and form the identity of these emerging brands. Have you always considered yourself an entrepreneur? Is that kind of in no. the DNA? No, it's incredibly <laughs> um, costly to be an entrepreneur. I think the, the um, while I may be entrepreneurial in my thinking, I certainly loved the time at the Walt Disney Company when I had a regular job and I knew the paycheck was good and I knew what the benefits were that were associated with that. You know, I'm of two minds. You know, I, I've always wanted to break with tradition and, you know, serve the story and serve the creators because for me, the more transparent that veil is between the creator and the audience via the story that's being told, the more effective the communication is and the more resonant the story is. And so, you know, that that's everything that we did at Disney, whether it was one Saturday morning or recess, we wanted the creator's voice to, to be really clear in that. And, you know, when, when you go over to Smosh, like, it's right there. Like, that's really honest. This is Ian and Anthony, and this is, you know, the kind of story they want to tell, and it's out there for everybody to see. And now in the mobile space, again, it's a very direct way of talking to an audience, especially on, on a platform like Yarn, which is our storytelling platform, where you are telling stories in text messages and FaceTime calls, which are the way that they communicate with other people. And so it's the most natural thing in the world to, to create those kind of connections with an audience. Yeah, very cool. I wanna talk about one of your other kind of entrepreneurial ventures now, which is your project with Matt Geelan called Prompt. Yeah, so Matt Geelan and, and Dean Valentine and I, Dean was a former boss at the Walt Disney Company, 
Um, we all share this particular passion for left-wing politics. Um, this is not necessarily a, a response to the current administration, but you know, we, we sort of felt like the country and the Democratic Party and the left side of the country was sort of not moving in a positive direction and, and not particularly effective at getting its message across, whatever that message might be, and, uh, and you know, putting candidates in office that, that could affect change in this country. And uh, you know, no, there's no time in our history uh, when that was ever more apparent than in the 2016 election. And so you know, we felt like it was our responsibility to try to create a, a media brand that speaks to that idea of you know, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to care about other people and care about the planet? And, you know, how do you put that into proper messaging to, to help people to, you know, come to terms with who they are as, as a voter and a participant in, in the world that they live in? And then how, how can they help to affect that change? And so, you know, we formed Prompt Media a few months ago and, uh, Matt works very diligently at it on a daily basis to, to try to build a brand for 16 to 24 year olds, you know, people who are just on the cusp of coming into understanding the political landscape and, and who they are and just, you know, on the eve of voting or just starting to vote in their first elections. And, uh, and you know, we, we set out to create content that informs, educates, and activates and so you know we, we want to first say hey here's what's going on here's what the issue is and then secondarily here's how this affects you as a as a young person uh, living in this country and living on this planet because it's not just an, an American issue I think that you see you know ugly right-wing hateful separatist um, nationalistic voices happening sort of all over the world. So, you know, we want to, here's how this affects you, and then, you know, ultimately, here's what you can do about it. So, you know, go vote for this candidate, go show up in Canvas on this day, call this phone number, sign this petition, write a check and send it here, watch this other video, read another article and, and become more informed, because, you know, I'm 56 years old, you know, it's not me that's going to inherit um, this planet, it's my son's generation and the generation after his, and and if young people don't take some responsibility for, for the world that they live in, we're gonna wind up with something that you know, doesn't look like what we want it to look like. And, and so you know, we're super passionate about what it is that we're trying to do. Uh, we're trying to do it at first in the digital video space. We're trying to help candidates across the country get their messages out in local races and, and uh, house races and you know, anything else where we can lend our services. And, you know, Matt is incredibly expert in uh, audience development, and so you know, how can we target appropriate audiences and, and create some resonant content that can bring about some change? Wow, what an incredible mission! And I have a million questions, so I guess just to jump in, one, I think it's so important because younger audiences don't watch, don't get their news from traditional TV or traditional news publications. I don't think they get news anyway. Yeah, so the, the tendency is well, exactly right. So the kind of the default response is probably then to just not consume news, to tune it out, not worry about politics, 
how can I even affect change anyway? And I think there's a bit of a feeling of malaise, especially after the 2016 presidential election. So that's part of it is that I think it's incredibly valuable to deliver the content for this audience in the place that they're already ready to consume that content. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, that's the challenge, right? I mean, if you why, why would you watch a prompt news video when you can watch a Smosh video or, or a, you know, Shane Dawson video, right? Like, what's the, tell, I'd rather watch Tyler Oakley, who, by the way, is very socially aware. Like, he's, you know, he's the poster child for, for what it is that we want to do, but he's, you know, he's one in a million, and, and uh, it's, it's a real challenge. And so, you know, one of the things that, that we're trying to do is to find young people who can write and produce this content and be in front of the camera on it, but, you know, two, try to create content that is in a format that is somewhat recognizable for them. So we don't want to do a guy sitting behind a desk reading the news. You know, what we want to do is create a top 10 list about, you know, top 10 reasons why Republicans hate black people, and then list those reasons and help people to understand, but in a format that, that is a little tongue-in-cheek and a little what they're used to looking at, and then, you know, help them move forward to understand what the issue is, how they're responsible for doing something about it, and then give them the opportunity to, to line up with something that can help change. Yeah, then the other powerful thing about this age group that you're creating content for is that they are discovering and developing their political identity. And we're in an era in which I think a lot of people, myself included, don't identify any longer with a Republican or a Democratic Party, right? And the positions that they've taken do not necessarily reflect the views of many Americans. So how can we create a change either in the parties themselves and the platforms that they represent or create a third way if it's possible to kind of share more moderate or independent voices? So I, I don't think there is a Republican or Democratic Party today. There's the party of Trump. And then there's whatever the Democratic Party used to be. You know, we used to be the party of the working people. We used to be a, a party who cared about other people and took care of our own. I don't know what it is that the Democratic Party stands for anymore. I'm not entirely clear, nor is anybody else, on who the leadership of the Democratic Party is. But, you know, what, it, what is abundantly clear through the rise of, of Donald Trump and the failure of the you know, Clinton wing of the Democratic Party is that people in this country don't really care for what they've been served for the last 50 years or 40 years. And so they don't want that anymore. They don't want the 16 people who faced Donald Trump in the primary, all of whom were qualified in their own way, all of whom had, you know, decent track records. And, you know, what they also didn't want, as what we didn't want as a country, was another you know, period of time where the Democratic Party establishment was going to be in control of this country. So change is afoot. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, how do we help the, the country and the world to make these changes in a humane way, in a way that, you know, does give us something different at, at the other side of it? Because I, I think that you can look at what happened in this country in, in the last couple of years over the course of the election, and, and you know, it is, it is very smart and calculated how the party of Trump uh, came into power and continues to be in power. They, they play on fears, they play on this idea that, hey, you know, things are bad for you, but it's not your fault. Like, it's Hillary's fault, or it's the immigrants' fault, or it's the Mueller's fault, it's somebody else's fault, and if only 
you know, those people weren't there, your life would really be, you know, what it's supposed to be. And that's, you know, super unrealistic, right? So, you know, what is realistic is that people need to start taking some responsibility for themselves because the government is not gonna fix everything unless we insist that things get fixed and things get moved in a, in a more sensible direction. Yeah, and it's not just the fear-mongering and the political rhetoric at the presidential level, but there is machinery that happens at the state and at the local level, and those elections really do matter. And I think that's what's so important for young people to understand is that you need to participate at every step of the political process and voice your opinion, because without that, we see where we are, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's more than just a, a political idea. I think that, that it's a humanitarian idea, that, you know, people's lives in this, in this country, you know, haven't necessarily worked out the way that they wanted them to, you know, and they, you know, don't have the health coverage that they want. They don't have the paycheck that they want. They don't have the house that they want or the neighbors they want or, you know, anything else. And so that they, they, you know, they have become um, we have become, as a country, very reactive to that and very resentful of that, and we're looking for somebody to blame. And I think that, you know, the entire country rose up in this last election. All the people that supported Bernie Sanders and all the people that supported Donald Trump rose up and said, like, we, we don't want this anymore. We want something different. And whether that's universal health care and everybody gets free colleges or build a wall at the border, you know, they're both kind of the same thing, which is, I got a panacea for whatever your problems are, and none of that is going to fix it. You know, there's not going to be free college for everyone unless you go to LeBron's school, in which case you can have free college if you graduate, but that's not a large scale solution, right? If you really go and talk to Bernie Sanders supporters today and you say, what, what was it that you loved about Bernie Sanders? Oh, I like the free college thing. Like, do you really think that's going to happen? No, he probably wasn't going to do that. So well, what else did you like about him? Well, I liked health care for everybody and no student loans. And th those things weren't, you know, real, yeah. right? Just the, thing I the border wall is not a real thing. Exactly. The thing I respected so much about Bernie was that he's so principled that I might not always agree with these crazy ideas or his agenda that he's advancing, but that he's held those beliefs for so long and that it really did feel like he cared and he wanted to make a difference. It did feel that way. You don't survive for as long as Bernie Sanders survives in, in Washington being principled. It, this is, uh, you know, I, there are a lot of things I liked about Bernie Sanders, but this is not a guy who was a Democrat. You know, he functioned independent of the Democratic Party Very true. Uh, in the Senate for a, a long, long time and, uh, you know, hitched his wagon to the party that he thought could take him a long way. So, you know, whatever... I think, does he believe that we should treat each other more fairly in this country? I think he believes that. But, you know, other than uh, Donald Trump, I think a lot of politicians believe that. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, I'm dying to know. i got to get your take on who is America, Sasha Barry Cohen's new, very extreme kind of reactionist uh, comedy take on the, the political environment that we find ourselves in. Have you been watching it? What do, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, uh, look, it's sensational. And I mean sensational, not in the sensational wonderful. It's it's sensational. I mean, you know, I think that you can make a fool of of just about anybody. As much as I think that we gleefully laugh at Judd Roy Moore or Dana Rohrbacher being made, made fools. They are fools, by the way. But, you know, 
I get a little uncomfortable and I get a little uncomfortable when he makes fools of regular people, which he does, you know, a bunch of different times. And look, he's a super smart, super talented entertainer, but it's hard. And so he's making entertainment, right? He's not, by the way, I'm a big supporter of, of Harley Ruda, who's running against Dana Rohrbacher in Orange County. And so, you know, we, we've gotten a lot of mileage out of Rohrbacher's, uh, what was it, the Kinder, Kinder... Big, uh, yeah, Kindergartians. Yeah, the Kindergartians. Well, we, we, you know, we like that. But, you know, at the same time, those people are easy targets. But, you know, when he takes a girl off social media and, and put, gets her to do awkward things uh, or, you know, even... I mean, again, I, I'm no fan of, of rednecks or bigots or, or racists, but, you know, he's, he's had fun at, at the expense of ordinary people who you know, just have some um, incredibly ill-thought-out beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where does new service like Prompt draw inspiration? What do you think, for instance, of the Young Turks, which for years now has created programming, often left-wing, trying to create this uh, voice for a younger audience, but borrowing the formats and adopting a lot of the you know typical approach of a traditional news program. Yeah, I, I think the Young Turks is great. I think Jenk is great, and, and he has a, a unique voice and a, and a unique position, and I um, give him mad respect for being in this game for 12 years. I think I met him at a YouTube gathering like 10 or 12 years ago, and, and he was, building this brand and he's stuck with it and, and it stands for something. That being said, it, like you know, many successful platforms on the right side, it's very much a cult of personality. You know, it's very much about him and his voice and uh, you know, the other people that he engages share his voice. And so I, I think that's fantastic, but you know, it, it, it is potentially a limiting factor. It is also not for 17-year-olds, right? It is for the people that, um, you know, people who watch MSNBC and Fox News, those are 60-year-old people, like their median age is 60, right? So this is certainly for a younger audience than that, but it's not for the audience that we're trying to program to. I think he's trying to program to an audience that's already irate. We're, we're trying to make our audience uh, irate and then you know, get them engaged. Yeah, rightfully so. Well, I can talk to you about politics and the media's impact all day, and maybe that's a separate discussion. But let's switch gears and just finish up with some rapid-fire questions. Sure. What is something that you believe that everyone else, perhaps in the media industry or the establishment, would think is totally crazy? Hmm. I've never been asked that question before. I don't really have an answer. That's okay. Like, I, no, I, no worries. I don't know. Like, what, what do I believe that everybody else thinks is yeah. totally crazy? I think everybody thought I was totally crazy with, with the Smosh thing. Like, I, I don't, even to this day, like, I don't think some people understand what it was that, that we, we were able to build. And I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about, you know, our media business and our sales business at Mammoth. And, and you know, talking about whether or not we had the right ad products and whether or not what it was that we were selling was attractive to advertisers. And I said, you know, I sold two kids on YouTube making user-generated content to advertisers. And the first thing we ever sold was a Smoothie King sponsorship for $5,000. Smoothie King was a local brand in Sacramento. And, you know, all the way to seven-figure deals for Smosh Live and, and everything else. So, 
you know, I, I think that, that sometimes the establishment is slower to catch up to what's happening in, you know, in the digital space or what's happening in the young people's space, as I like to call it, because, you know, young people are always sort of trying to stay on a device or a platform that their parents aren't on. And there's this, you know, reactive side to traditional companies that says, oh, I'll just be a part of uh, Shaq's YouTube channel, or I'm going to involve myself in Madonna's Twitter. And, you know, in, in the early stages of that, so they, they miss the boat. They miss the, you know, the, the real um, authentic content that's being produced in that space because people tend to shy away from it. And so, you know, eventually they catch up. You know, by the time they catch up, sometimes people have moved on to the next thing. Speaking of the next thing, what three predictions do you have for the future of the online video space? We won't be using that term like five years from now. I don't know what the online video space is. I mean, today it's, it used to just mean YouTube. Today it's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter video, Snap stories, Instagram stories. Like, you know, what does it all mean? I, I think that it, it just, it's all the media space. Like it's all the media space. I think the thing that is, you know, probably changing the most rapidly is non-traditional monetization. Um, you know, we, we come from a world of, you know, where, where we were talking about this a little bit earlier, 22 and 44 minute constructs. So advertisers can insert, you know, their, their commercials in, into programming. And today it's very different. And, you know, how you get revenue from an audience is very different today. And I, I think that, you know, while everybody's shocked or, or cheering the fact that you know Netflix subscriber growth was down that's an example of consumers paying for exactly what they want and they they want just that like they don't want a thousand other channels that they don't want they want Netflix and Netflix has a has a broad enough programming landscape that there's something for everybody on there and, and so it's a good value proposition and I think that that's a huge step in the direction of people paying for just the content that they want. And so eventually if I, you know, want to watch this thing, I can pay 75 cents or a dollar and, and watch that thing. Or if I want to watch this thing, I can pay for that by itself. So you expect more microtransactions to come through for entertainment? Yeah. I mean, I think that our, you know, our platforms at, at Mammoth are, while they're not microtransactions, they are transacting a much narrower band of, of programming. And so when you become a VIP in Arena or you subscribe to, to the Yarn platform, you're getting something that, that is really narrowly programmed to, to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does the future hold for Mammoth? You know, we're going to continue to develop new content-based applications for mobile devices. And, you know, hopefully there is some overlap between the brands so we can draft off the success of the other platforms and, and uh, you know, make the, the next version of Yarn and the next version of Arena and the next version of Wishbone. And, you know, ultimately, I think the goal of the company is not to have, although we wouldn't not want this, but it's not to build one app that engages 100 million people, but it's to build 20 apps that each engage 5 million people and that through our network of apps, we, you know, we have an incredibly broad landscape of, of programming. You know, just the other day, I, I looked and, you know, we had 
our, our three apps were in the top 50 in the iTunes store. And so that's a big deal coming from one company. Yeah, and I think it's all about building those super fan communities and creating the content that super serves them. So, mm -hmm. very good. Uh, now, obviously, you are in the thick of it with Mammoth and launching prompts, but one question I ask everyone on the podcast is if you were taking everything that you know and starting over building a business in the media space today, what would you do? What would I do? Blank um, canvas. You know, I don't know. It's so, you know, it's so hard when you, when you are doing so many different things, it's, it is hard to think about what you would do in, in a blank canvas. But, you know, what I would really like to do is, is to have a lot of capital at, at my disposal to make the kind of programming that creators want to make without um, being hemmed in or restricted by, you know, a network brand or, or a programmer's needs. And, you know, it is the movie business at the top of the movie business where there are auteurs that get to make the kind of, of films that they want and they're unfettered by, by notes. But, you know, I think that that's where I would want to be and I'd probably want to be making that kind of programming for a younger audience. Very cool. And Barry, where can people find out more? Anyway, ultimately, like, that, that show is Stranger Things, right? When I look at that show and I'm like, there's a you know, work of art made by these two guys, supported by the, the big company that, that gave them a lot of latitude. And, and while it's not entirely perfect, it's so engaging to so many different quadrants of, of the population that it's, you know, it's just incredible. So yeah, I'd like to make Stranger Things. <laughs> that, that, that's the answer to that question. Very cool. Except it's not called Stranger Things, it's called something different and, and it's slightly different. Where can people find out more about you and more about Mammoth Media? They can find out about Mammoth Media at, uh, at um, mammoth.la. I think it's mammothmedia.la. Um, they can download the Yarn app. They can subscribe to Prompt on YouTube and Facebook, and uh, they can probably Google me. I don't think there's anything bad out there. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> Never know, huh? I'm not the Barry Bloomberg who won the Nobel Prize, though. Oh, uh, okay. But some people have told me that I should just lean into that. You should. Yeah, yeah what did he win for? Uh, I, I think he won for um, hepatology. He was uh, he was a liver specialist and, and then ultimately became an astrobiologist. Wow, yeah. incredible. He's dead. Okay. I met his neighbor who I believe is running, for, no, I, I don't believe, she is running for Congress oh, wow. in uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs. Yeah. Um, I don't know the number of her dis the district. Her name is uh, Madeline Dean. And she was Barry Blumberg's neighbor. And so, How did you meet? Well, I met her at an event about a week ago, and, and uh, she's like, you're not. I'm like, no, I'm not. And she's like, I knew him. I said, that's crazy yeah. that you knew him. How wild. She said he was a really nice guy. Good. I'm a nicer guy. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. yeah. Well, Barry, thanks again. This has been so much fun to uncover a little bit more of your story and the journey that you've been through with the evolution of media, going from the traditional space to helping brands like Smosh and Defy and, and now Mammoth, amazing, engaging content for young audiences. So thanks again for sharing your story. Great, and thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. A reliable Wi-Fi connection is as vital as your wallet. With Skyrim, you won't be trapped in a cafe or wander for Wi-Fi again. 
For work or fun, the Solus 4G LTE Wi-Fi hotspot has you covered with fast Wi-Fi across the U.S. and in 130 countries. And with its built-in power bank, devices stay charged on the go. Get data by the day, month, or gig. No contracts. Go to skyroam.com slash techpod to save 20% off a of Solus with code techpod20. Business Insider calls it a must-have travel gadget. Visit skyroam.com slash techpod. Offer code techpod20.